Church, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 5. We are finishing up the first part of the book of Leviticus about offerings. We've kind of been working our way through this. And what we have seen is that each of these different offerings shows us a different facet of what it is to have relationship with God. It gives us a different picture of what we're seeing because, as we've been talking, Leviticus is in the the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and there's a particular purpose to these first five books. The Torah is God's word of training people for relationship with him. He's been teaching us something about what it means to have relationship with him. When he gave Israel the commands and the sacrifices, he was training them and helping them understand what it meant to have relationship with him. And it just so happens that Leviticus is right in the middle of the Torah. We talked about how Hebrew people, they like the things that are really in the middle. The the things in the middle emphasize to us uh, the point that's trying to be made, right? And so Leviticus is showing us realities that are core to having relationship with God. And so uh, just kind of review some things that we've looked at, some some of our key lessons that we've gained so far. The first is that uh, we've learned a lot about relationship, that God is a God who wants relationship with us. Literally, like the word offering is God saying, bring something near. He's saying, I've made a way for you to be with me. Come and be where I am. I want to have a relationship with you. All of these offerings are grounded in the idea that God wants to know us, that he wants to build this relationship with us. Another concept, another lesson we've been learning is about how how these offerings, they had significant cost to them, right? That it is a blessing that we have been invited into relationship with God, but that, that relationship, it does call for something from us. It requires something of us. We bring uh, something that costs a significant amount to the table, right? Uh, the third lesson that we've been learning is that it is a sacrifice, that, that, that every sacrifice that is brought is a sacrifice without blemish, right? And we talked about how that word without blemish talks about not only the, the nature of kind of the perfection of the animal that's being brought, that there's no damage to that animal, that there's no broken limbs or anything like that, that that animal is without blemish, but how that, that word applies also to our character, right? How, uh, the idea of innocence, the idea of being blameless, right? And this builds in the idea of the Israelite mind this concept that I, in order for me, a sinful person, to have relationship with God, something innocent has to die, right? So it builds that idea in their head. And then the, the final thing that we've been learning about is about atonement. Talked a lot about atonement last week and how atonement is kind of, yes, payment for sins, but also it's purification of us. And so in every case, God is pinpointing this connection between us and him. So, uh, Jesus talking to uh, different people, but he's teaching about the law, the Old Testament law, the very things that we're talking about here in Leviticus even. And he's, he, he tells people, you know, hey, the whole law, it rests on two commands. What are the two commands? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, whatever translation or, or gospel you pick, right? Uh, but then the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the last offering that we look at today shows us explicitly that being right with God 
is directly connected to being right with people. Being right with God is directly connected to being right with people. So the way that this is is demonstrated to us this morning is through the concept of ownership. Now, uh, you know, it's crazy. I went to seminary and I got through seminary and uh, not once in the entire time in seminary did somebody explain to me how crucial the concept of ownership is to understanding what it means to be a human being in scripture, right? Like it's the, the idea that I would have that I would have ownership over something and take responsibility for it is really connected to God even defining what it means to be human, what it means to be made in the image of God, right? And so I was amazed that I never got to talk about that or learn about that. But as you study scripture and as you particularly look at the Old Testament, you see that God is deeply passionate about ownership, He cares about ownership, that we would own things and take responsibility for things. Now, certainly, on the surface, you know that this is true. Because if you look at the last six of the Ten Commandments, each of them, at least in some way, relate to the idea of ownership. Right, like, uh, in, in fact, you could you could frame all of them some way in some way in terms of don't steal, don't steal your neighbor's wife, right? Don't don't steal your neighbor's things, right? Uh, and and then what do we do? Like at the very end, don't steal your neighbor's life, right? We don't want to murder him, right? That's good. But then you get all the way to the end, and then it says, oh, by the way, don't even think about stealing, right? Do not covet in your heart, right? So so it's covering this idea that there are things that belong to your neighbor, and they are your neighbors, and you leave them alone, right? Okay, so, even though we don't know it, we are somehow, I think, plagued by the idea that God, you know what he really cares about? You know what God really cares about? God cares about spiritual things. And so there's these categories of spiritual things that he cares about. He cares that our hearts and minds are in the right place. He cares that we worship him with an undivided heart. He cares that our prayers are genuine. He cares that we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, right? And we spend a lot of time thinking about things that we must believe, right? In fact, we all know this verse. It is by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. Faith. These ideas of things that we believe, concepts that we understand, the great temptation, both of us in the current circumstances that we live in, but both of the church throughout history too, yes, God cares that our minds are in the right place, but, but God cares about material things, right? What we do with material things matters deeply, it is significant. Like, so, so we, we are tempted to believe this lie that what matters is spiritual things and that physical material things are inconsequential. But the reality is, is you could just label all of it under the, the, the label of spiritual, right? And say God is telling us what to do with the physical in light of the spiritual, right? So, so today's offering shows us clearly that that division between physical and spiritual did not exist in the Hebrew mindset. Right? It shows us that the Hebrew is there thinking about uh, things and what it means to believe and have faith, that faith is directly connected to, to things that we do on the ground in reality, things that are tangible, right? So, uh, so how we handle the physical stuff that people own in this world 
is directly connected to how we relate to God. So Leviticus 5, 14 through 19. Starting in verse 14, it says this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, in verse 15, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord. Interesting, it's already clear. You can commit a breach of faith, belief, by what you do with things. Your faith is connected to what you do and how you interact with things. And in, ca- in this case, those things are the holy things of the Lord. It's saying they're things that belong to the Lord, things that he has direct ownership of. And, and in this case, if it's talking about the holy things, it's talking about the things that are connected to the worship practices that they're carrying out. Right, so, so what is this? The things that, the holy things that Yahweh owns. He has staked a claim to ownership of material things. Right, so the items in the tabernacle that are used for worship. Now you think of the lampstand or the altar of incense, the offer that the burnt offering goes up on, right? the curtains of the tabernacle, the barrier that stands around the court. All of these things are things that God says, hey, that's mine. That is my holy thing. I have ownership of that. But then you add to that, there, there are certain items that the priests were to use. There's clothing that the priest was to put on. That stuff belonged to the Lord as well. The gifts that the priests were to receive, what's interesting is that in some places it might be called, yes, that it's the priests, but you notice at the same time that it is the Lord's, right? If you look at these sacrifices and something is being given to the priest, the message to the Israelite is, hey, this is the Lord's, right? And I'm giving it to the priests, right? That's kind of what he's saying there, right? And so even the specific parts of your sacrifice that you brought to the tabernacle, before you have even given those parts to God, God has said those parts are mine. Those are the things set aside for worship of me. They belong to me. So what's been really interesting is I've been looking at this this week. Uh, God's most violent reactions against individuals in Scripture regard things related to his holy things, regard actions taken in relation to his holy things. So we're, we're going to look at it in a few weeks. I don't want like, give to give it away. But uh, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, they uh, offer unauthorized fire before the Lord. They, we can just interpret that as they dis- deliberately misuse the holy things, misuse the sanctuary and the tabernacle. Um, yeah, God smoked them just right there. Like it was like instantaneous. It was, it was done in an instant, right? You think of Achan. Achan is a, this guy uh, who, when God was sending the Israelites into the land and he was saying, hey, I'm claiming this land for myself. And so he looks at kind of all of the, the property that belonged to the nations that they were going to kind of, as Israel was coming in, uh, these nations had property and God called that property his devoted things, right? The reason they're called his devoted things is because there are things directly connected to the worship of false gods. And so God is saying, I'm taking ownership of those things in order to destroy them, right? So that when you go into this place, you're going to destroy all of these things. These are God's holy things 
Even though they're going to be destroyed, God takes special ownership of them. Well, what happens is Achan goes in and he sees some of the intriguing nature of these things. Some of them have a lot of value and he says, you know, I'm gonna keep a little bit for myself, right? That was a mistake. He deliberately sinned against God's holy things and then him and his entire family had to answer for that sin with their lives. Uh, then you could look at Uzzah. You remember Uzzah when, when David went to go get the ark from the Philistines and, uh, and they, they, he mishandled the ark, one of God's holy things, like right there on the spot. Again, God smoked the guy, right? Uh, and then, okay, so wait, we need to go. This is not just Old Testament stuff. When you go into Acts chapter five and you witness Ananias and Sapphira and the whole community is there together and it says that they had everything in common. They were selling off their property. They were giving to one another and Ananias and Sapphira say, you know what? We've sold off our property too and we're, we're gonna bring our portion to, to share with the community except they were lying, right? And uh, we could be left to assume that God basically gave them both heart attacks right there on the spot for lying in relation to the Lord's holy things. Right, so, so now that, that just kind of helps you understand that the, the passion that God has around the things that he has set aside for worship. This, this sacrifice that we deal with today, it doesn't actually deal with willful offense, right? All of the examples that I accounted were, were examples of willful offense, but this sacrifice does not deal with willful offense. It deals with unintentional offense. All of that is to say, the, po the point of all of that is that God is deeply passionate about this stuff. Why? Why is he so passionate? Why do people die on the spot when they sin and cross this line intentionally? Why does he attribute such value to physical things? It's because of this. Like, if, if you've not gotten anything from this series, like, the one thing that I want you to know is God deeply desires to have relationship with us. That is what he's showing with these offerings. He deeply desires. He's doing everything he can to maintain the possibility of relationship with us. These physical things are the tools that he has provided out of the graciousness of his character to relate to us. To not handle the tools rightly is to tell God that you do not value the relationship. It's to speak to, like imagine, so the prodigal son comes home, right? And the dad approaches his son and he treats his son like he still wants the son. He's so glad to have celebrated a, a restored relationship with his son. But I want you to imagine with me for a second. Imagine the next day, dad says, okay, son, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. But now you have to be home by 1030. And you and I have to sit together and eat dinner at the table every night. And... Um, and I have some responsibilities for you too. Like every day at morning and noon, you have to go feed the cattle. And um, I also need you to handle house repairs. Right? Like, I'm so glad that you're here. These are some things that I just need you to carry, some responsibilities that I'm giving you. Now, on the one, the one hand, the son could think every once in a while, you know, ah, the cattle could afford to miss a meal. Right, dinner, dinner with my dad is not that important today. I have dinner with him every day. It's not that important today. Uh, you know, that repair, 
that needs to be done. If that repair doesn't get done, it's not like the whole house is going to fall down. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, and, you know, if I'm somewhere at 1130 and that place is not home, like nobody's going to get hurt by that. Like that could be the thought process that he has. And, and those could be the behaviors that he displays. But if those are his behaviors, it displays that he doesn't actually value the relationship that's been restored. Right, so, so now we know, yet that the son, before he came, decided that he was going to be like a hired servant in his dad's house. Right, so what he does with the physical things and the physical responsibilities, they display how he values the relationship. Right, so this is what God is saying with this. Your value for my things shows me your value for our relationship. That's what he's saying. So to intentionally mishandle is like you're spitting in God's face. So God says, if you unintentionally sin, right? If you accidentally, and this is how you could do that, right? You could accidentally eat some of the portion that was supposed to be reserved for the Lord. If you forget to do your math correctly and give the wrong portion of flour. If you somehow in your walking along or in your Uh, kind of day-to-day operations, you do something that might damage the sanctuary or the tabernacle or the, the, the boundaries that are around kind of the court, then you've unintentionally sinned in the holy things of the Lord. And so this is what you need to do. Leviticus 5, 14, if you've unintentionally sinned, then it says, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. Now, guilt in this case is not just related to the idea of spiritual guilt. It's saying there's, there's material value attached to the thing that you've done. And in verse 16, it says that he shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy things and shall add a fifth to it to give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. So, so if you've sinned unintentionally in this way, you're bringing two things. You're bringing a sacrifice because you have a sin debt with God, but you're also going to bring money because you have a real debt, a monetary debt with God. Right, so this is what restitution is. Restitution is restoring the value of the damage that you've caused. Restoring the value of the damage you caused. Um, now, damage frequently has a cost that is greater than the value of the actual item, right? Because I've now, by damaging something, I've disrupted your life to an extent where I've kind of caused some frustration, or if it's the priest, I've disrupted temple worship, right? And, and what it's saying is, well, you have to add a fifth. You have to add a fifth to the value of the thing that you're restoring in a way of kind of making up not only for the actual damage that you've caused, but kind of the disruption that you've caused as well. So if I sin unintentionally with any of these things, I have a way to show God that I still value the relationship. Right? That's what this is saying. It's a way, like God is providing this way. If you sin unintentionally in these things and you didn't mean to do it, you have a way to show me that you still deeply care about what we have here. 
Now, it is possible, uh, for what it's worth, to sin in the holy things of the Lord in a way that would not have monetary value. And that's what verses 17 and 18 talk about, uh, to, to, to sin in a way that, that maybe you didn't damage something, but you still disrupted worship in some way. You were required still to bring a ram. So this is what it says in verse 17. If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then he realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. And so in verse 18, the way that he uh, you know, makes restitution for this, in verse 18, he shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock. What this is telling us, so this is different than a sin offering, which we looked at last week. Just go with me real quick on this. What this is telling us, last week, sin offering was for unintentional sin in any series of things. But this is talking to us about sin specifically in relationship to the holy things of the Lord. It says he must bring a ram. Last week it could have been a female sheep. This week it is a male sheep, a ram that must be bought. What that's telling us, what the the information about the sacrifice is saying is that there is a greater gravity in mishandling things related to worship mishandling commandments related to worship. That's why you need to bring a male lamb and not a female lamb in this case, or a male ram instead of a female lamb in this case. Okay, so that's just like a, a little note to be aware of. That is part one of this restitution offering. Now, for what it's worth, I don't need to tell you this, like in the New Testament, God is still deeply passionate about relationship. Right, but he has given a different set of things that he uses that he enables to facilitate relationship with him. Right, so I think it's important for us to, to ask the question, what are the things about which God might share the same level of passion? What are God's holy things now? I just want to tell you about them. Number one, it's the church, his gathered people, his body. These are the people through whom he is extending his witness, his welcome through the world. This is holy to him. This is, uh, you are a, uh, a holy race, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. You are his, right? So the church is one of his holy things. There's also his word, the message about Christ. Like literally, all of the energy in Leviticus and the entire Old Testament was building up to tell us about Jesus, Right? So, so we have his word as this message about Christ, and that means we need to rightly handle his word because it is his holy thing. Right? We have the gifts from the Holy Spirit. Right? These are his holy things, right? things that he has given in order to facilitate relationship with him and relationship amongst his people. And then finally, you have his resources, what he has provided to his people. These are all things that he is deeply passionate about. He takes seriously what we do with those things so much that do you know what he calls all of us? He calls all of us priests. We're all priests because he has given us his holy things to possess and care for well and make sure that we use properly. So the questions that we have to answer, do we steward our resources for his purposes? Are we using Holy Spirit's gifts for the things that he has given them for? Are we upholding the value of the witness of the church? Are we humbly serving God's people? Are we caring for the widows and the orphans and the downtrodden among us? Are we sowing seeds of unity amongst us? Are we valuing the roles that others play here? Right, all of that is is in relation to the holy things that he he has given us. 
So the beautiful thing is Christ is our payment when we recognize our failure in those things, right? He is our forgiveness. We are not bound by a law that says determine the exact value of the wrong that you have caused and add one-fifth to it, right? That's not how this works. We're governed by the law of liberty grounded in the love of Christ, right? But there is a principle to acknowledge that when we have misused or abused God's holy things, we don't simply deal with an invitation into forgiveness, although that grace is a motivating factor, we have an invitation to make amends. Right? Like to truly repent, to display that we actually have value for this relationship that we've been gifted with. Right? So, so what does this look like? Like when we misrepresent his word, especially as teachers or those who might explain his word to other people, right? then we need to go to those that we've misrepresented the word to and make sure we correct ourselves, right? Make sure we own the wrong and say, you know what, I spoke wrongly in this regard and I need to fix that, right? When we've neglected the poor among us, then we need to seek to stop that neglect and and make up for the lost time as well for what it's worth, right? When we've participated in gossip or slander in the church, we get right with those whom we have slandered, and we repent to all those to whom we spoke the inappropriate word. When we've neglected a gift he's given us, then we put ourselves in situations where we have no choice but to use that gift. Now, I could keep going here, but the point is the principle applies, right? When we've neglected or misused God's holy things, he calls us not only to, yes, receive the forgiveness and grace of Jesus, but then make right the place where we have been wrong. Okay, so, so Leviticus 6. So that was, the first thing was in regard to things that God owns, things that God calls his holy things. So Leviticus 6, uh, verse 1, it goes on, and now it's going to talk about things that your neighbor owns. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone sins, commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a manner of deposit or security, or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor, or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things that the people do and sin thereby. I want you to notice two things for me. Number one, be encouraged by this. God is willing to keep accounts for when you've been wronged. That's what he's saying here. He is keeping accounts for every person in the community that has been wronged. Right? God cares how we treat people. It is directly connected to our relationship with him. To harm what they own is to offend God. And so we don't just make a sacrifice for when we've offended God. We make a sacrifice for when we've wronged our neighbor. So that was the first thing to notice. The second thing to notice is that while the last one dealt with unintentional sins, you might read this list and realize it's dealing with very intentional sins. Right? So unintentional sins against my neighbor, for what it's worth, that already had laws in place. You could go back to the the book of Exodus and just look at all the, the neighbor laws about what I do if I misuse my neighbor's donkey or, uh, you know, uh, do, do something that messes up his property or something like that. You know, there are tons, uh, it's all there and, and that's all unintentional, right? And it gives me ways to make that right with my neighbor. But this is dealing with intentional sin against my neighbor. 
This deals with me when I have clearly done something where I intended to harm my neighbor or lift myself up at my neighbor's expense. And so verse four goes on and tells us more about this. If he has sinned and he has realized his guilt, this is how he will address it. He will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found. This is the restitution piece and or about which he has sworn falsely. So again, we have this process of assessing the value of the damage that was done, right? And what you see is the concept of ownership kind of transitioning a little bit, right? So there's things that I own that are my property, but then there's this reality when I go and do damage against my neighbor's property, I actually have to take ownership of that damage, right? That damage is added to the account of things that I own, right? Ownership, so ownership matters because ownership is a reflection of God's image. Ownership is part of the creation mandate. God said, rule the earth and have dominion. Take responsibility over the things that I give you. Ownership is part of what it means to be human. And so God is interested in the real damage that's been caused because that's going to be added to the account of the person who caused the damage. You take ownership of the damage. That's what he's caring about here. So verse six, uh, ver sorry, verse five, it goes on. It says, he shall restore the damage that he owns in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him whom it belongs. So, so catch what God is doing here because it's significant. God is incentivizing the reality for you to come clean, right? He is creating an opportunity where you now have an incentive to come clean in the thing that you've done. He wants you to confess and repent out of your own volition. Now, why do I say that? Because it is much cheaper to come clean than it is to get caught. Right? If you come clean, you pay back what you took plus one-fifth. But Exodus 22, 7. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found he shall pay double, right? So if you, found, if you are found in your sin, if somebody catches you and what you did, you have to pay 200%. And so it's much cheaper to come clean than get caught. But the focus here is not just on the financial incentive, right? The focus is on something else. Like God is trying to create the structure to promote something else to take place. And we see that something else in verse five. On the day he realizes his guilt. So number one, God wants us to realize our guilt, right? This has been said over and over and over again. God wants us to recognize the real damage that we have ownership of, right? Our invitation into relationship with him ought to open our eyes to the reality of these things. So I just wanna kind of deal with some language that we use in relationship with this to, to kind of accurately describe what God is encouraging here and what he is building the groundwork for that would come later. So first, 
just want to deal with the concept of shame. We're going to work through three different words here. So the concept of shame is this. It is a deep, don't feel the need to write all of this down. Just the highlighted parts are really emphasizing the, the big piece, right? But shame is a deep sense of personal disgrace that causes me to adopt an identity based in the damage I sense I've caused, right? We say things like, oh, I can't believe that I did that. I can't stand to look at myself because of what I've done. And for what it's worth, shame is never helpful, right? Shame, as you adopt that identity in the thing that you've done, shame will keep you running through the same cycles of sin over and over and over again, right? Shame is not what is wanted for you, but that is one of the places that we go to. Then there's this this other word that keeps coming up in our passages. There's this word guilt, Right? Guilt is this recognition that I am in trouble right? because of specific actions or behaviors that violate God's standards or the trust of others. Right? We say, oh no, I, I feel terrible because like, I don't know if I'm on that person's bad list now or uh, I hope I don't get in too much trouble. And, and, and so we, we worry and we kind of, but, but there's something like, there is this reality that there are actual accounts that are not balanced rightly, right? We are in somebody's debt with guilt, right? So, so now in the old covenant, that's all that we get, right? We have shame and guilt in relation to kind of our personal responses or realities in relation to sin. And, and God is encouraging as we look at guilt, he's encouraging people to take ownership of the ways that they have violated other people's ownership, right? He's creating the space for guilt to be realized, for people to come clean, right? But remember, all of this is also training, right? So they're not just things that are happening right now. He's preparing them for something. He's laying groundwork for something else that, going, that is going to come, and that something else is conviction, right? Conviction is a spirit prompted awareness of the damage I've caused against God and others, resulting in the consistent pursuit of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Imagine an Israelite who had been formed and shaped, in the days of Jesus, who had been formed and shaped in the the sacrifices and the recognition of guilt and the understanding of debt and what it meant between you and God. And then finally, like you're listening and you hear one of the apostles preach the gospel and then you understand what it means that God has been pursuing relationship with you through all of these sacrifices, all of this time. And you say, the God who loved me that much, I've been doing this against him. That's conviction. That is good. That is something that takes us to the place where we need to be and brings about repentance, right? So all of the Bible's teaching about sin, all of the emphasis on God's holiness, all of the talk about what could be in this world if corruption hadn't entered in, it's meant to lay the groundwork for the Holy Spirit bringing real conviction to our hearts. And so John 16, verses seven and eight, this is why the Holy Spirit has come. Verse seven, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. Jesus saying this to his disciples. For if you do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In verse eight, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
right? It's, help, it, it, it's meant to help us rightly see how we've contributed to the brokenness, right? And this is how much God values ownership, right? That's his goal. When we've contributed to the damage that exists, we recognize the portion of the damage that we own, right? When we've harmed him or somebody else, that harm has resulted in damage that we have ownership of. And so, going back to Leviticus, verse 5, it says, On the day he realizes his guilt. So when he realizes the damage that he now owns, uh, damage that he has caused to his neighbor, he needs to make it right with his neighbor. Do you see what's interesting here? God is actually anticipating the way that they're going to turn this into a religious system, right? Because when I sin against my neighbor and I think, oh man, I can get out of this pretty easily. All I have to do is bring a ram to God and that kind of takes care of it. And you know what God says? He says, you can't bring the ram until you go to your neighbor and make it right with him. In fact, you don't postpone. You know what you can do? Like on all these other sacrifices, it's just, it just says, when you realize your guilt, you're supposed to go and make a sacrifice. Really interesting, though. God doesn't just say, when you realize your guilt, go and make it right with your neighbor. He says, on the day, in the moment that you realize you have wronged your neighbor, then you go to your neighbor. You don't worry about that ram until you've gone to your neighbor. Right? You've made things right with your neighbor. Because being right with God is deeply connected to being right with people. So he says this, and he says it again and again and again, and this is why we can even see this in, in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Jesus, is re- he's kind of telling his disciples about the law and what the law means in Matthew chapter 5. He, he talks about the significance of this, and he says, hey, if you're going, you're bringing your gift to the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, You leave your gift at the altar and you go to your brother and make things right with him, right? He's reinforcing, he's he's picking up essentially what God was laying down back in Leviticus, right? Because their temptation is to say, oh, well, if I just bring the ram, then I'm good. Then I don't have to own up to the thing that I've done. And he's making sure that they own up to the thing that you do, right? So, So if you think you're walking right with God, and this is the implication, right? If you think you're walking right with God while ignoring the damage that you've caused, that you actually have ownership of, the implication is that you might not be walking right with God, right? Because being right with God is directly connected to being right with people. Just want to tell one story real quick, the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus had wronged person after person after person. He had taken, he was a tax collector, he worked for uh, the Romans, and right, as a tax collector, he gets to take whatever portion off of the top that he wants, and he was sitting well, right? Like, he, he, he had taken advantage of this system, and he was hated by just about everybody in that area, too. And, uh, and Jesus looks at Zacchaeus and says, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming over to your house for lunch today. So, so they go, and they they have lunch together, and we don't know what is said in that room, but we can imagine that Zacchaeus experienced from Jesus something of the reality of God's mercy, of the reality of his grace towards him. Zacchaeus comes out of that house, and he says, I'm going to restore what I have stolen. 
but I'm not going to just pay back one-fifth. I'm going to pay back 400%, four times what I have taken. Right? What Jesus did in the moment where, where Zacchaeus experienced that grace, Zacchaeus became convinced, I, I have not only so wronged things, but I have so prevented generosity from taking place that I'm going to be overly generous, over and above what the law would even require of me. Okay, so what? So what? Two pieces. Number one, it is impossible to make full restitution for the damage you own. In Psalm 51, David acknowledges damage that he is responsible for. Right? If you read Psalm 51, here's what David knows in the midst of all this. There is no money that he can bring. There is no animal that he can kill. There is no time that he can give. There is no religious action that he can perform that would rightly make restitution for the damage that he caused. He had sinned against people. He had impregnated Bathsheba through adultery, arranged for her husband's death on the battlefield, dishonored her grandfather, and ruined her life. And even that damage is damage that can't rightly be compensated, meaning in the ways that I've sinned against another person, I could have harmed them in such a way that I would never be able to pay financially. But in verse 4, the extent of the inability to compensate becomes clear. Psalm 51.4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. As significant as the damage is that I have caused on a human level to human beings, it does not compare to the damage that we own against God. You could give your life 10,000 times and it would not pay for the damage that you own and what you've done in your relationship with God. Right? The only thing that can set you right with God is the mercy shown to you through the sacrifice of Jesus. Only Jesus' blood is adequate payment to make restitution between you and God. Right, so the Son of God actually endured beating, endured real torture, endured real suffering, actually hung, like carried his cross on the road, hung on the cross as the oxygen was being drained from his lungs at a very slow rate, and he actually died because that's how much God values relationship with you. Right, Jesus was willing to own the damage that you own. Right, so, so remember your account all of the damage that you've caused, that you've participated in in this world, Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to take your account and I'm going to bring it with me on the cross. And I'm going to pay your account in full. You know, it was a fun song that we sang, like just in terms, it's like very upbeat, but sometimes when we're singing this upbeat song, the hymn that we sang this morning, we don't think about what it really means. So I just want you to listen to the words of the song we sang, the first song we sang, To God Be the Glory, Great Things He Has Done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son, who, yield his, who yielded His life in atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all might go in. O oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment 
from Jesus a pardon receives. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he has done. Number two. So what, number two? I want to encourage you to take the risk of owning up to what you can. All right, so to experience the reality of your accounts being settled with God, it changes you. When you understand the gravity of what you have committed, the extent to which your sin could not be paid for by you, and you understand then that God was willing to pay it with the blood of Jesus, it changes you, and it pushes you to settle accounts with those that you've wronged. Right? But that's awkward, and it might not go well. Right? There's this reality. When we think about returning to the people that we've wronged and going back and kind of uh, owning up to what it is that we have done, it doesn't mean you still don't need to go to them. So maybe as I've been talking here this morning, the Lord has brought to mind someone that might have something against you or someone that you need to be made right with. And I hope you've got this today. Don't waste another moment not being right with that person. Right? He's made you aware of it. So today, today, on the day, you realize it. Set up that phone call. Make that, whatever the meeting is that you need to have, make, get it on the schedule, right? And then do this, right? Because this is, the, there's some tools that could be helpful for us as we take the risk of owning up to what we can. So I want to tell you this, just four different things you can do. Number one, make confessions that appropriately acknowledge the damage. So don't just say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Say, I'm sorry, I was wrong because this is the damage that I caused and I realize how terrible that damage has been. Where there is restitution to be made, make it. Right? If you have something that you need to make whole, make it. Do everything in your power to make it whole. Number three, acknowledge what you can't make right and seek mercy. Right? Remember that part that we talked about? There, there's this reality where we cannot fully right the wrongs, even that we have with people that we have made. We still need to name them. Right? But there's this place where we might be put in a position where we have to fall on the mercy of another person. So then finally, in this, number four, describe your commitment and hope to live differently by God's grace. This is what repentance looks like. This is what taking ownership of the damage that we've caused looks like. And you know what? It was a risk for Zacchaeus. I don't know how much of his total like bank account uh, 400% was, but I suspect that he was not sitting on like a massive amount of money. I suspect that he um, was no longer rich after that moment. Right, that he let something go for the sake of other people and, and committed himself to living just like another person where he was not going to defraud his neighbor anymore. It will be a risk for us to go and make restitution. But
But church, if, if we are stories that God is writing about Jesus making things new, then in how we take ownership, we have tremendous opportunity to show people that Jesus makes things new. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, Jesus, I just thank you for the, um, the gift that these, these five offerings, if they, as they have helped us understand you and your character, Lord, the significant things about who you are and the fact that you, more than anything else, you are um, striving for relationship with us. Right? Though we are wicked, though we are sinful, though we uh, bear our guilt, you are seeking yet ways to be with us. And we are really grateful for this. This is a gift to us. I pray for every person in here that you would help us to appreciate the depth of the gift, that we would know the extent to which Jesus' grace goes to clear our accounts so that we can begin to make right the things that we've made wrong. And so that we can begin to be changed and experience new life and experience healing in places where there has been damage. So Lord, I thank you for the gift. I thank you for, for showing us more about your character. I pray that you would keep our attention on the amazing gift that we've received in Jesus as we enter into communion now. And we pray this in his name. Amen.